Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, in person, we're meeting in our building on Hill Road. Uh, we were outside in our lawn chairs, you know, earlier in the summer, but it's getting warmer outside. Although, ironically, last Sunday was our first Sunday back inside, um, and we had said, oh, we'll come back in the first Sunday, August. It's supposed to be really hot, and it ended up raining that morning, so... Who knows? Uh, this week, you know, it's been funny, like in the morning, it's been so cool. Like I've had a sweatshirt on or something, and then it gets like muggy and hot in the afternoon. It's been gross. Weird weather, whatever. We're back inside our building. We gather together. We have kids church. We have worship. Uh, we pray together. We study God's word together. Uh, small groups, some of them are meeting in the week still over the summer. A lot of them are on break, but they'll be getting going here in a couple weeks. And we have youth group that meets Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. here at the building. We're going to continue looking at the life of Elijah, and today we're going to finish chapter 19, and we're going to look at what it is to pass the torch to the next generation. Well, we're going to start where we left off last week, chapter 19 in the book of 1 Kings, and it's starting here in verse 13, where the voice of God says to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They have put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Saphat from Abel Mehaloah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel, and Elijah will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I shall reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bound down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. And so Elijah went from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphath, who was plowing his fields with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. And Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah said. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back and took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. And he burnt the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. This is God's word. So today we want to talk about passing the torch, handing off to the current generation. And I say the current generation and not the next generation for a very specific reason, but we'll get to that in a minute. So Elijah has been the prophet that God has had in Israel. Now, there were other prophets. We know that. There's at least 100 other prophets that are still alive. Uh, if you get into chapter 20 uh, and chapter 21, you're going to find out that there's other prophets that we don't know their names, uh, but God has, is working and speaking through them as well. But Elijah was sort of the leading prophet in all of Israel, the northern kingdom. And now God says, hey, you're going to anoint Elisha 
to succeed you. So there's this passing of the, cho- of the torch. What's interesting to me, though, is in verse 15, God says to Elijah, you have three things I want you to do. Handing off to the next generation, it might be our job, but it doesn't put us out of a job. Those of us who are here and we've been working and serving God and doing what God has called us to do in our church, in the, in the work that we have in our, our jobs or our schools or our community, whatever it is, we all have a place that we are at. Handing off doesn't put us out of a job. Now, it might change our job. It might be that we were in the driver's seat for a long time. And it might be that now we're, we're navigating. You know, we're in the passenger seat and we're the one holding our phones with Google Maps going, okay, uh, this is the best route to go or, or giving some advice or just making conversation. You know, sometimes if you're on a long road trip, the driver just needs somebody to talk to him. You know, there, there are these different uh, things that come along on a road trip. And so even if I'm not the driver anymore, it doesn't mean that I have no responsibility. You know, maybe you become the DJ, maybe you become the navigator, maybe you become the conversationalist, or you're the person in the back who's in charge of making sure snacks are distributed or whatever. There's all kinds of jobs on a road trip. So just because you hand over one job doesn't mean that you're out of a job. God gives Elijah things to do. And Elijah is still going to be around, likely for at least six more years before Elisha actually succeeds him as the kind of chief or leading prophet in the nation of Israel. Elijah might have been handing off, but he wasn't shutting down. That's one of the lies, I believe, that is prevalent within church culture and in culture in general, is there comes a point where you hand off and then you are checked out and done. Until the Lord takes us home, we have work to do. It might look different. It might change. How I ministered in my 20s versus my 30s and now in my 40s is different. I could say something in my 20s and it would land because I was young. There were things I couldn't say in my 20s that wouldn't land because I was young. And now I can say them in my 40s. But there are things that I could say in my 20s that I can't say now or things I couldn't do or what have you. Jobs change. Elijah is handing off his job, his role, his identity to Elisha. But he's not out of a job, and he is still used of God. Now, Elijah has built up a narrative, a narrative about himself, a narrative about his people, a narrative about the culture around. That's natural, by the way. All of us do it. Every generation does it. The story we tell about ourselves, the story we tell about those who came before, the story we tell about those who are coming after us. All of us do it. We build up narratives in our mind. We see this in the Gospels all over the place where the disciples of Jesus and those who are interacting with Jesus have a narrative built up about who the Messiah is and what the Messiah will do, and because they believed, many of them, that Jesus was the Messiah, then they started applying that narrative to him. And he would say, well, that's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. That's not what's happening right now. You're putting that on me. But that's not what God has actually said. And he was constantly challenging their narratives. 
Friends, can I tell you, it doesn't matter if you're 18 or 88. All of us need our narratives challenged because we will create our own echo chamber, our own insistence on our own rightness, and we all need our narratives challenged. I need it, you need it, everyone needs it. And God is in the business of challenging people's narratives. It's natural to to build up a story that we tell. God will challenge that story. Think about Elijah's story. What is it he says? You know, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, well, I've been very zealous for you. And the Israelites have rejected your covenant, and they've torn down your altars, and they put all your prophets to death. I'm the only one who's left, and they're trying to kill me too. So think about the ways in which Elijah tells his story, and God challenges it. Elijah says, hey, they're trying to kill me. What is it that God says? Go back. They're, they're trying to put me to death, God. Elijah, what are you doing here? There is where I want you. There is where I have you. There is where I told you to go. The last time that God told Elijah to go anywhere was to go back to Israel. He went south into Judah to Mount Horeb on his own initiative. So there's this story. Oh, I've got to be here because they're trying to kill me. I never told you to do that. What's, what else is in Elijah's story? I'm the only one left. What is it that God says? I have 7,000 in the nation who have never bowed their knee to these false idols, who have never kissed the feet of the false idols. Apparently, I was reading this week that there are places all over the world where there are statues or icons that people come and give worship and honor to. And, and there are or drawings or paintings where everything else is in pretty good shape, but you can see where people have kissed it, and that part has been worn away. The, the, the feet of the statue or the idol has been worn away from people coming and touching or, or kissing or whatever. Uh, you know, the oils of the human body, given enough time and enough you know, exposure, will break down even stone. Um, I was in the British Museum I was maybe 21, 22 years old in London. And uh, there was a piece of the wall of the ancient city of Babylon. And I reached out my hand to touch. And a very kind but very stern security guard uh, made it very clear I was not supposed to do that. And I was, I think, polite and apologetic. And he kindly explained to me something that my inexperience didn't realize about the oils in a human hand. And so I learned a lesson that day. Why am I saying that is because people would come and they would kiss the feet of these idols, these statues of stone and wood to represent the various gods of the nations surrounding Israel. And they would come and they would worship and they would pray and they would request and they would give honor and homage. And God's saying, hey, Elijah, you keep telling everybody, but you're the only one left. But it's not true. Obadiah told you about a hundred other prophets he's hiding who have not given up. I'm telling you now that I've got thousands who have never once bowed their knee, who have never once kissed the idol, who have never once sacrificed to false gods, who have never once committed acts of violence or immorality or adultery before these idols, as was the common practice. You're saying you're the only one left? Let me challenge your story, Elijah. 
You're not. He says, oh, they've torn down your altars. Elijah, you just built one back up. You just went and restored a very significant place of worship of the true God. Do it again. Oh, I'm very zealous for you, God. Then what are you doing here, Elijah? Go back. Elijah has this story, this narrative that he's telling. And for those of us who are older, who are passing to this current generation, we need our narratives, our stories challenged. Because we have stories and we have narratives about the current generation. You get to verse 19. And he goes and he, he comes to Elisha. Now, a lot of people have made a big deal about the fact that God told him to go to uh, Hazael and then to uh, Jehu. But here, here's the thing. I don't doubt that he did. If, if he went back the route that God told him to go, uh, he would have passed through their area before going to where Elisha was. I don't doubt that he did do those things. And they come up later in the Bible, um, Jehu does become king of Israel. Hazael does become king of Aram. So I'm sure that he did. He passes through, he does this anointing act, and then goes on, and the story picks up in verse 19 when he gets to Elisha. What do we find there? We find a young man who is hard at work, and he is very likely part of that 7,000 remnant that God was talking about. I have 7,000 who have been faithful to me, who have never bowed their knee. And he's just quietly getting on with his life, living as faithfully to God as he can. He is hard at work. What is the stories that get told about the millennials or Gen Z or whatever? They're lazy. They don't work hard. They're faithless. Look, there's truth to that in every individual. You know, you have a group of people and you have individuals. Within Gen Z, there are lazy people. Within the millennials, there are people who reject God. Absolutely. That's also true of the Gen X and the boomers and the builders and the greatest generation and all that. We tell these stories about people or groups of people, but they're not true. Elisha is there faithfully living his life in the ways of God. That is counter to Elijah's narrative about him and his generation. And there are so many who have these things where we can't hand off to the millennials. We can't give responsibility or, or whatever over to Gen Z because it's not their turn yet. They're the next generation. The next generation is a way that older people, and I'm going to lump myself in there. I've got enough gray in my beard now. I'm going to lump myself in and say it's a way that older people say the next generation because we'll hand off to the next generation in the future. They're next. After us, they'll come up and then we'll hand off to them. They're the current generation. Somebody's a millennial. They're 30 years old. They're a grown person with a job and a career, and they've been through some things. I'm not saying that they know everything, right? But they've been through some things. You know, I remember you, know, you have people like when I was like 35, and people would say, oh, you know, this, and that. You, you'll learn someday. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm a grown person, and I've got kids and a wife and responsibility. Like, I don't know everything, but I've been through some things. This, these narratives that we tell, these stories that we tell, sometimes are there to justify ourselves. Sometimes they're there to keep us in control. If I can just tell this narrative, I don't have to get out of the driver's seat. Oh, I can go a little further. I've driven farther. You know, I, I, I don't know. They've only had their license a couple years. We have these things that we can tell to keep us in, in the place of prominence, keep our hands on the wheel. But Elisha was the one that God wanted. Go and anoint him to succeed you. So Elijah comes 
and he throws his cloak, some Bible translations might say his mantle, over Elisha. This doesn't mean much to us, but in their culture, what it would have signified, and Elisha knew exactly what it meant, the prophet Elijah throwing his cloak over Elisha in this way would have signified, you have been given this role, this position that I have. You are the next to do what I'm doing. Elisha would have understood what this meant. Now, what's interesting is that he doesn't make him do it. He goes, he says, God wants me to do this. So he throws his cloak over Elisha. And then he's like getting ready to leave. And Elisha has to run after him. We might say here to the current generation, you know, those of us who are like Gen X or boomers or whatever, we could say to millennials and Gen Z here, it's up to them to take it. If you're younger than me, it's up to you to take it. We've, we've been called by God to take what we have and hand it off to the next. It's up to them to take it. Elisha is not trying to control, Elijah is not trying to control Elisha. Elijah is not trying to impose, here, you do what I do on Elisha. He said, here, here's the office, here's the role that I've been given, and God has told me to give it to you. And then he's going to leave. You figure it out. You do your own thing. You are a grown person. Figure it out. And Elisha runs up to him and says, first, let me say goodbye to my mother and my father. Now, I thought immediately of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 59 through 62. You see, there was a man there who came to Jesus and said, Lord, let me follow you. And Jesus said, okay. And he said, but first, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, no, let the dead bury the dead. Get going. What's the difference? What's the difference between Luke chapter 9, where somebody comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but just let me say, go, go say goodbye to your family. And Jesus said, hey, let's get going. And here in 1 Kings, where it seems to be fine. I have a theory. I have an educated guess. And it's this. Luke chapter 9 was about selfish convenience. 1 Kings 19, Elisha seems to be about an orderly transition. Let me go bury my father. When somebody came to Jesus, and they did, this is a true story. Somebody came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you, but let me go bury my father. What they were saying in cultural context was, Jesus, my, my dad's old, and he could die at any time. So let me go, and then once he is dead, I'll come and follow you. And Jesus is like, man, you don't have that kind of time. Because Jesus knew that his time was there and now and his public ministry on earth was only like three years and he was already at least a year into it when all that happened. And Jesus says, no, come on, get going. The person who was saying, Jesus, just wait for me, is the person who says, I'm going to follow God later. I'll follow God after high school. You get out of high school. I'll follow God after college. You get out of college. You start your career. I'll follow God after I get things settled down and I'll get serious with my career and put my life together. Then I'll really follow God. I mean, I believe in Jesus and I, I you know, sure, I, I, I think I'm going to heaven, but I won't really surrender my life to God until after and we keep pushing the goal. Well, I got, 
you know, got to get married. My career's set, so I got to get married. Okay, now I'm married. Well, we got kids, and so, uh, you know, we got to get all that in order. I have time for all that. And so we have these things that we say, and, we, and the reality is we always keep pushing it further and further and further, and it's selfish, self-centered convenience. When is it easy or convenient for me to surrender my life to God? First Kings is the opposite. What does Elisha do? He goes back to his house. He kills the oxen he was using to plow the fields. He takes their, um, their harnesses or, you know, their, the plow, the wood that was part of the plow itself and he uses it as the fire to cook them. He, he, he offers it to God as an act of praise and then he distributes the meat to his neighbors, his friends, his family. Elisha's actually probably a well-off dude. Uh, when you think about it, he had 12 teams of oxen. That's 24 oxen. And wealth back then was measured in livestock. He had people working for him. He had 11 other people at least working for him, and he was uh, using the 12th team. So he's got this crew of people working for him. He's got all this stuff set up, and he just says, all right, I'm done. He cashes out, distributes to others, and then leaves and goes to be the servant of Elijah. See, he's just trying to get an orderly transition going. He recognizes what the calling is, that God has called him not just to believe and be faithful, which he has done, but to go and live in a unique way. Every person is called by God to believe in Jesus, to repent of our sins, to turn away from this world of death, and to accept the free gift of light and freedom and life that Jesus has given us. And then, for those of us who believe, we're called to do what Elisha did, live our lives, live as faithfully as we can to the word of God, do what we're supposed to do, and go from there. But there are those who have unique callings, very, very unique to them. People who uh, are called to go to another country. We're going to talk in a, in a few weeks on the uh, Starting Points podcast about the prophet Amos. Amos grew up in Judah. God told him, I want you to go north and you will only, you know, prophesy up in the northern kingdom. Uh, you know, there are those who uh, lived in one place and felt called to go somewhere else. Our church, Faith on Hill, was started because preachers from back east received letters from settlers out here in the Oregon Territory saying, can you come and preach? And they were German-speaking settlers, so German-speaking preachers came and they began to preach, and the church was started, and our church was at the very least bilingual, German and English, when it was started. People left where they were and came here to preach the gospel. That's a unique calling. There are others who have just unique callings given to them. You know, they're uniquely situated to do a specific ministry. They're uniquely situated in a certain role, and they have influence or connection. Uh, whether it's at a, a community group or a school or a, a, a business or a neighborhood, and they just have a unique connection to do this specific thing, and it's a unique calling. And you and I aren't worse because we don't live in that calling. That's between them and God. You know, there were almost 7,000 other people who weren't called to be a prophet of God, but they were living faithfully to God. They hadn't bowed to the false gods. They were doing the right thing, and God was pleased with them. The difference between... Elisha, and those in Jesus' day who were like, hey, just let me wait to bury the dead, is that Elisha understood this is a unique calling. I'm going to go put my affairs in order, and I'm going. 
It wasn't about delay. It was just getting things done in the proper way. What's interesting to me is that Elijah continued on as the primary prophet in Israel for another six years, roughly speaking. Might have been 10, but it was probably around six years. Hezael, that's the guy that God told Elijah to anoint as king over Aram. He didn't become king over Aram for another 15 years. Elisha had to wait six years. Hezael had to uh, wait 15 years. Jehu, 25 years. Elijah said, you will be king over Israel. It was a quarter of a century later. Friends, can I encourage you, don't despair over God's timing. It's rarely our timing. You know, God, you might say, God, why aren't you doing this thing? And we expect him to do it now. And God says, you know, if, if, if God were to tell us, he says, yeah, I'm going to do it in three years. I'm going to do it in three months. I'm going to do it in five years. I'm going to do it in 10 years. God knows the right time. He knows the right place. He knows the right moment. Timing is everything. I was having dinner recently with a friend of mine, and we were connecting. We hadn't seen each other in a few years, and he was telling me about all the changes in his life and how God had lined everything up. But at the time, it was so frustrating. He was waiting, and while he was waiting, other stuff was moving into place, but he didn't realize it. And then when everything became clear, he said, oh my gosh, if everything had happened in my timeline, nothing would have been ready. But because God delayed what I thought should happen now, everything was lined up perfectly. Amazing. Don't despair over God's timing. It may rarely be our timing, but it is perfect and it's correct. And this long timing of God, six years for Elisha, 15 years for Hazael, Jehu, 25 years. Understand this, when we're talking about passing the torch, boomers and Gen X, Gen X and millennials, millennials and Gen Z and all that kind of whatever made up names we have for the generations, when we talk about passing the torch, it's rarely instantaneous. It's rarely instantaneous. But that means that we work together. Faith on Hill is a multi-generational church, and I'm so thankful for that. It's a multi-generational church. We have old people. We have young people. And that gets hard sometimes because churches tend to kind of coalesce around a singular identity. Oh, that's a young church. That's an old church. And it's easier. If it's all a bunch of old people, then they just naturally and easily do the things that older people would do as a group together. If it's all a bunch of young people, then they would naturally and easily do all the things that young people would do together. And, you know, if it's a young church, older people can come if they're kind of young at heart. And if it's an older church, you know, you got these old souls that come and whatever. But if you're a multi-generational church, you're in it together. Older and younger. And I'm in the middle, right? Like I'm 41. So I'm 41 years old. And I see the people in their 60s and 70s and 80s being faithful to God. And loving. And caring. And I see the younger folks, teenagers, 20s and 30s, being faithful to God among a faithless generation. And they are witnessing, not just to the world around, but to the older of us, saying, hey, it's going to be okay. We're in this together. I believe that all of us have something to give to somebody else. God's maybe taught you how to have faith, and God taught somebody else how to have boldness. God taught that person uh, 
gave them great understanding about prayer and that person great understanding about you know, organization or whatever. And we all pool together, learning from one another. Older, younger, right, left, modern, traditional, whatever. When we pass the torch, we don't put ourselves out of the job. When we pass the torch, we just make the team bigger. Elijah was still around. He had still had things to do. He's not done. This is not our last week studying the life of Elijah. Even though right here and now he has Pass the baton, he's not done. Things aren't over. I want to say this. To believers, we need to always be passing the torch. Sometimes for, old, for younger believers, that means passing the torch to older believers. You know, you may be younger in age, but you've been a Christian longer, and you pass the torch to somebody who's older, but that you kind of take what you have and pass it along. Everyone has somebody we can pass on to. You know, even if you're not a church-going person, but maybe you're just somebody who, who's involved, you know, you're a coach or you're a, a volunteer or you're this and that. Everybody has somebody that they can pass something on to, some, something we can impart to others as we learn from others in equal measure. The greatest thing I could pass on or impart to you is this. I believe that there is a creator. I don't know how God created the world. Did he create the world in six literal days or was it over millions and millions of years through uh, slow evolutionary processes? I don't know for sure. But I know this. If we were a little bit closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If we were a little bit farther from the sun, we would freeze. And yet here we are in a system that is designed to give life. I believe there's a creator. I believe, as the Bible says, that humanity rebelled against that creator and fell into sin and death. But God, the creator, loved his creation so much. He loved women and men, old and young, so much. He said, I don't want them to be in bondage to sin and death. I don't want this broken relationship to stay broken. How can we fix this? How can we mend this? And there was nobody who could. The Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture, is full of people who tried tried to be good enough, tried to be strong enough, tried to be brave enough, tried to be humble enough, tried to be big enough, whatever. It never worked out. So God himself became a human. Jesus, fully God and fully human, he lived among broken people. And in the end, broken people nailed him to a cross of wood. But he went willingly because while he was dying, the perfect person, the only person ever who has never sinned, he was accepted as the sacrifice to pay the penalty that our sins deserve, which is death. And when he was on the cross, every sin I've ever committed was placed on him. Every sin that you've ever committed was placed on him. Every sin that's ever been committed against you or me was placed on him. And any and all who will believe in Jesus in their hearts, and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, will be saved. That's the greatest thing I can impart to anyone. And that is the invitation. Remember I said at the beginning, we can hand off to somebody, but they have to choose to take it. I'm handing the gospel to you. But you have to choose to take it. Wherever you're at, wherever your situation is, I want you to know that God loves you so much so that he died to save you. But not just that he died to save you, but he has a place for you in his family, in his kingdom. 
and he wants you to come on in and be part. If you have questions about that, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. You can come join us on a Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Uh, you can subscribe, Spotify, Apple Music, or Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. Just search Faith on Hill and hit subscribe. Wherever you're at, wherever you are, I want you to know that Jesus is real, that Jesus is still changing lives no matter what everybody else says because there's still people, young and old, who have never bowed their knees to the false gods. And Jesus can change your life like he's changed ours. God bless you.